We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, on this special edition of the podcast. Recap edition as we take you through the first five episodes of the podcast. Catch up on anything you might have missed. Before we lay out those first five guests, though, want to tell you about a very special series we've got coming up on ERCOT in light of what happened during the big Houston freeze and, of course, the entire freeze of the entire state of Texas. ERCOT in the news for all of the wrong reasons and with everything that's been bandied about and all the stories and news that have been gone around with what happened. We want to get some folks on here on the Green Insider Podcast, a little four-part series that we're going to do on ERCOT, looking at it from a business, historical, and news perspective, what ERCOT is, how we got to this point, and what needs to be done moving forward. So, likes of Steve Berberick, who you've heard here on the Green Insider, Ken Donahue, as well as Evan Caron are going to be some of the names you're going to hear talking about what went down with ERCOT. So definitely stay tuned for that. You will not want to miss it. All right, let's get you ready for this recap edition. The five guests we're very excited to kick off the 2021 season with. We had Jake Jaquez, CEO of EnergyWare, for 20-plus years in the energy trading side of things on the oil and gas and power, making his move into the renewable side of things. Lots to learn from there. Matt Beaton, Senior Vice President for Renewables at the TRC Companies, making the plunge into the private sector after spending some time in the public sector over in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Following him, Steve Berbrick, former California ISO CEO. He'll be part of our ERCOT series, but he joined us earlier this year to talk about the California blackouts as well as battery storage and the grid. Following Mr. Berbrick, you'll hear from Ken Robinson, President of NG Energy Marketing North America. Great stuff from Ken talking about the differences in Europe as well as the United States working and the renewable scene, which might not be as different as you think, as well as a new renewable product that NG's rolling out that he's very excited about. Finally, Brett Estep, Senior Director for Tanaska's Renewable Advisory Group. A few years over there in that role. Very unique opportunity that he had over at Tanaska. He talks a little bit about that, as well as oil and gas and what they need to do to work with the renewable sector as part of the energy transition. So without further ado, please enjoy the recap. The demand for solar okay. has really gotten my attention. Yeah, there's a lot of um, sustainability uh, issues that that, uh, that they're having. Um, one in particular is, is the state of California not wanting, not willing to do business with certain institutions. Right. If you're not using your behind the meter energy, I find that really intriguing, and there's definitely a need for it. That's 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 exciting news for all of us. And then when I found out what you guys are doing. Yeah, PPAs, I mean, that's just another asset that, that we can utilize to, to get the best rates for our, our clients. So, I mean, I was really happy to hear from Mike. What's been the biggest hurdle transitioning to the renewable space? I guess just knowledge. Okay. I mean, learning, learning the lingo, learning the product. The jargon, I mean, I, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I got a funny story, another funny story to tell you. I was probably about a month in and they just said, hey, Jake, we want to do some LED lights out in a chemical plant in uh, Pasadena. Would you be interested in you know, seeing as the, the new CEO go out there, do, do a photo op and all this other stuff? So, sure, why not? I went out there with the, the rep. You guys, I was on a reactor about 10 stories up in the air, <laughs> the outside, wind was hurling. I said, what the hell am I doing up here? <laughs> 
but I'll tell you that experience alone and just, just seeing the, the process and what takes place. And it's just really cool to see that. And, and, um, and that's not the, I mean, I actually went and did my own audit in the woodlands, the parking area. I mean, just a massive facility. So I mean, as a CEO to learn that I'm humbled enough to, to get out there and do it myself and, um, and, and talk to the layman and talk to the, you know, the, the engineer out there, the project engineer. And I love it. I love, I love, I love to learn. Yeah, you know, doing stuff like that and them seeing you taking that active role, that sets a good example for your team that you have and speaks highly to the client you're going after with regards to your interest in the project. So hats off to you. That, that's a good move on your part to do that. I appreciate that, Mike. And, and I agree with you. I, I agree with you. But I mean, most importantly, it's from my own perspective, my own, my own knowledge. I want to learn. I want to know what we're doing. Like I said, we've got some, some major projects coming up and I intend to, I mean, I know COVID's around, but regardless... I still want to get out there and meet people and, and introduce myself and see the work that we're doing. One of the biggest challenges is an age-old acronym of, of NIMBYism, right? Everybody wants renewable energy. Everybody wants a cleaner environment, but nobody wants any of the stuff that requires it to happen anywhere near them. And that is playing itself out. You think it would disappear. Nobody wants an incinerator next to their house, right? But people don't want a transmission line next to their house. People don't want any of that infrastructure you know, for good or bad, right? For so, I, I, I don't have one over my house, so I can't, I can't opine on that conversation. I don't know what it's like, but it is going to be, the reality is it's going to be one of the biggest challenges. And we saw that play out with um, our pursuit of hydroelectricity and the resistance by environmental groups. So you have environmental groups arguing against things that would allow for the import of an existing renewable resource, uh, clean carbon-free resource, and same, same with, with offshore wind. When you look at all of the challenges of getting the generation and thinking of the history of how we have come to know electricity, we all flip on our lights and have a million gadgets and gizmos flying around us powering electricity. We don't think about where that comes from. Historically centralized generation, run it through a transmission system into the distribution right to our house and bam, we have our lights. Well, now we're flipping that all on its head and we're moving it into a more distributed energy. We, you know, we've got much more localized rooftop and you know, more smaller scale renewable resources. But then we have the much larger uh, utility scale uh, projects, like whether it's you know, a large solar field or a wind field or hydroelectricity from Canada, wherever it may be. Where are those, those electrons are being generated at those locations are more often than not, much more often than not, not located anywhere near the load center that they're trying to serve. So you need to get them from point A to point B. And right now, what we're doing is, you know, the most, you know, everybody, it's a business. Everybody's trying to do their project in the most profitable way possible. You're going to go to the point of interconnect and the closest that, that needs the least amount of infrastructure investment. And we're plucking a lot of that low-hanging fruit with what we're doing today, which is the right place to be. But once we get beyond that, the constraints and the bottlenecks that are going to occur from getting the electrons from where we need them from point A to point B when we need them is going to be probably the single greatest challenge that uh, renewable energy development will face, whether it's getting it in from the ocean, getting it up from Canada, getting it from plain states to, to wherever it is you're trying to get it from point A to point B. We're really going to be facing some challenges in the years and decades ahead as we continue to build more and more renewables. 
renewables didn't cause this. The renewables behaved as they always behave. The wind moved around. The wind did okay. Um, I mean, it's not like it caused the problem. And solar goes away in the evening. That's no surprise to anyone. And I think it's important to tell everybody that wasn't the problem. The problem was poor planning. And the poor planning was that there was still too much dependency on imports to fill any kind of loose ends that California had. And as the resources continue to decline in the West, that's going to be more exacerbated going forward, not less. So California is going to have to have its own resources. And those resources, at least in the the near term and midterm, are going to have to be storage because You can't throw solar at this because it doesn't work in the evening. Wind will help, but California's wind has its own sort. It it is largely a night-based wind pattern, and it needs to be married with the portfolio effect of wind in the rest of the West. That would better help things out. From your experience, again, you operate over 80% of the grid there in California. For a country that wants to go more electric, and we're talking about an already archaic grid that we need to make some improvements to, but now we want to go more electric, how do we marry the two? I think the best way to handle it is economics, and that's the single word that should be used here because the reason being is, is there enough capacity on the grid as an example to charge electric vehicles? In general, the answer is yes. Now, that's a question then of when do we have people charge their cars? You got to use something to be incented to charge at the right time. And I think economics work. You and I and everybody else will go across the street um, to one gas station or another for a couple of cents. And I think the same thing is true if I give you a five cent or 10 cent discount on your electricity per kilowatt hour to charge at a certain time, I think people will react to that. And I think that's the best way to integrate this as opposed to building a bunch of infrastructure to deal with it. I also think, you didn't ask this question, Fred, but I think broadly, I think we're moving away from large installations and large power plants and large transmission systems to more distributed systems. And can the more distributed systems, I think, again, it goes back to planning, How do you get them married up with all these things? And I think that's where things are going. And I think economics can play a very important part of driving behavior to match up with the system needs. One of the other focuses here recently is what we call responsibly sourced gas or low methane, low carbon natural gas. And the reason for that is we're highly involved, like most companies, in natural gas also. It's, it's, it's part of the energy tr- transition. There was a concern about shale gas and about the high methane content. And so we've been working with, um, let's say, the producer and end users around you coming up with this responsibly sourced gas. That's the term that's labeled most often and it's not just on methane it's across air what they do with water treatment with their social environmental uh, community impact we talked to various firms about their approach around validating pushing to make sure there's an accountability at the producer level and uh, we're working with a firm called canary project they have this ies trust wheel around a certification and i believe that's that's an area where we'll, we'll start to see a lot more emphasis on trying to come up with a, let's say, a low methane or an RSG type gas that, that'll move us forward. And I think all this um, you know, concern about shale gas, potentially you'll evolve a different market. It's no different than the oil markets. 
that created low sulfur, high sulfur, light, heavy. I mean, it's just a grade differential. And in this case, it's an environmental differential. And I think that's an emerging area, too, that we're really focused on on natural gas as part of our energy transition. On the RSG, uh, responsibly sourced gas, so again, we're, we're working on both sides, producers and consumers, and on the producer side, we're working through these pilots to test it out because um, they've been working on their ESG for years, and now it's how do we make it more transparent where it's beyond just a self-validation and we've got a third party coming in, and again, I, I mentioned this Project Canary, IH Trustwell, there's others also that we've been talking to. And um, we go through these pilots, which is a, a partnership where we can test, you know, what they're doing, the different metrics on methane intensity, what they're doing around their, their air and water, what they're doing on community, the impact that they may have, you know, traffic and potential concerns that a community may have on it. And so it allow us to go through and test all these different criteria to see um, what is most sensible And then coming up with standardized metrics, I think, is the key. And as we go forward, we won't have pilots anymore. It'll just be, I think the goal will be to have a market that prevails both on the the supply, meaning the producers and the the end users. End users, they've got sustainability goals. They want to be green. There's nothing pushing them to do that other than their own companies. And so there's not a regulation. But I think, you know, everybody's interested in it. It's just a matter of first movers and people getting involved. And I think the pilots will be a good test for us to do that. How long do you see these pilots' duration? They only take about two months. Okay. Um, because you have to set up the equipment. You go through all the criteria. There's interviews. There's on-site visits. So it's not something that happens overnight. Companies that do this are the ones that probably the best ones to speak about that. But I do know a lot about them because we've invested a lot of time looking at them. It takes a little time. And, you know, these pilots won't go on forever. Eventually, the, the industry will buy into it and it's become much more automatic and it's proven. The pilots are just set to prove that this is something that works. People can believe in. Producers can get confidence that it works. Consumers, end users, municipalities, universities, utilities, they want to see, they want to know that they're buying truly low emeth methane gas and not just um, gas that's, um, let's say, more standard. And so it's important for everybody to, to understand what's going on and, and transparency around it. And so that's our intent. And there's probably another angle is, is you know, it could be traded as credits on, on the market, organized markets, exchanges, you know, where people can get credits for reducing the amount of methane. So there's all sorts of opportunities and there's work underway with firms doing that. There's a lot that can go on in this market of potential. And so we're, we're getting into it. And a lot of my clients are on the heavy industry side. So oil and gas, petrochem, mines and minerals, there's some pragmatism to that and that they have heavy electrical loads. It allows, uh, it affords you some, a lot more options to pull levers on the renewable side. They also recognize that they're in the crosshairs from shareholder groups and regulators and potentially the, the new administration. And so I think they, they recognize that there's a lot they need to do. Some of that also think, you know, as an ecologist, it's a recognition of, like we talked about before, the negative externalities that have always existed in some of those industries, they're, they're wrestling with it. Not that they haven't always, but I think it's now being priced into markets. There's a recognition of long-term sort of fiduciary responsibility from, from boards. My only concern when I look at those is, you know, many of these are my clients and I, I find a lot of sincerity in the people that are trying to say, look, we're, we're trying to do these things. We're trying to move the ball forward. We're trying to make progress. What gets lost, I think, in the emotion and 
you know, news organizations and sensationalist uh, blog posts is that it takes time to do these things and, and that there are costs to everything. If we went 100% renewable, there are costs. If I build, you know, as an ecologist, if I, I, can, I can stand there and say, well, look, if you, you know, carpet that entire desert with solar panels, that might be great unless you're an animal that lives in that desert. Uh, or unless you're someone who likes to go hike in the desert and see unspoiled wilderness that is the desert. Right. Everything has a cost. There, there is no free lunch. And so I think as a, as a society, as an industry, as a country, we have to wrestle with that and allow room for that wrestling to happen and for that dialogue and, uh, and create pathways for the oil and gas majors and the chemical companies, et cetera, the plastics manufacturers to say, okay, Let's at least all get pointed in the same direction and start making those steps. Uh, my personal view is that I think the Biden administration, you know, there are, there are, there are always fringe pieces everywhere. I think they absolutely will be uh, mindful of that. You know, I think one of the advantages of Biden in this case is that he has been around for so long. There's lots of negatives, I think, to being, you know, essentially a career politician. But the upside of that is, boy, you've really learned how to compromise. And I think that's what we have to have here. You know, let's point, let's find some partnerships between, uh, you know, maybe classic extraction companies and and new, more green companies. You know, I mean, the last time I checked, in order to have lithium for your <laughs> electric car battery, you still, still has to be a lithium mine somewhere. No. And uh, so there, are, there is still a sh- extraction that has to happen. So let's just apply some logic and reason, maybe tamp down the finger pointing and let's say, okay, look, we're trying to do this. Let's all point in the same direction. We were talking before the podcast started, uh, all my extended families from West Virginia. I go back there a decent amount. There's some really, really poor parts of West Virginia that what happened is big coal companies came in, they extracted the coal and they also extracted all the value out of those communities. And those folks are left with not a whole lot of prospects. We have to be... I'm not suggesting we still should be burning coal. I don't think we should at all. I think we have great replacement alternatives, but we can't turn a blind eye to the idea that when you reform these markets, there are impacts. So let's just be mindful. Let's own up to that and let's talk about it. Thank you to all the guests and everybody behind the scenes for making the first five episodes of the Green Insider possible. As always, thank you to the president and founder of eRenewable, the brains behind the operation, Mr. Mike Niemer. Don't forget, you can catch any of the Green Insider episodes at Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Don't forget, if you're listening to us on Apple iTunes, please leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy than before you drop by. For Mike Niemer, I am Fred Davis. Thank you so much for listening to the Green Insider podcast. The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable, we make going green easier. No one mentions the neighborhood.